The book of James. If you have your Bible with you, would you turn there with me? Uh, the letter of James. We can also call it, as this was originally a correspondence that James wrote, again to early first century Christians struggling to understand what it looks like to walk with Christ, to follow the risen Jesus. You can follow along in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. I've been praying all along that the Holy Spirit through this letter, through this study, through the book of James would be changing our perspective, lifting us from a, from a worldly view to, as I spoke about last week, to a God's eye view of our lives, exhorting us to think and to respond differently to our trials, to the source of wisdom for our lives, to the source of our identity. Where do we find our identity in the, in the amount of stuff that we have, in the socioeconomic category that we fall in, and even how we view the money that's in our banks. It's a very practical book, and I hope you have found it to be so. As we've walked through this first part of, of the letter, many of the things that we've talked about have been a realignment, I might say, of, of what the world has to offer. The world says this, but God says this, so realign your thinking and therefore your response in this way. But as we move into these verses, verses 13 through 18, it seems to me that we're taking it up a notch because James is not, James is not seeking to simply realign us, but he's, simp he's talking about unmasking for us a bold-faced lie that presents itself in this kind of situation, the kind of situation that he's speaking about in James chapter 1. Hopefully that will become clear as we work our way and and uh, meditate on this passage for a few moments. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for God's, the reading of God's Word. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to begin this morning with a true story. The other night, Thursday night to be precise, I came home from the office and one of my kids 
had stubbed their toe. It was swollen, hurting quite a bit, and this particular kid just couldn't get it off of their mind. Understandably so, it hurt. I'm so sorry that that happened, was my response. Did you take some ibuprofen? Can, can I get you some ibuprofen? And the response I got was this. It happened while I was emptying the trash, which you told me to do, so it's your fault. <laughs> now, it was spoken a bit tongue-in-cheek. They were joking. But it beautifully expresses not only the natural trajectory of our hearts, but exactly what James is talking about this morning. And I immediately declared that it was going into the sermon. <laughs> to which there was protest. To which I declared there'd be anonymity. We want someone to blame. It feels good when things happen to have someone to blame. Even if the blaming is irrational, even if the blaming is directed to God. As we meditate on these verses for the next few minutes, I want us to see and to hear and to wrestle with today and this week two exhortations from James and I trust from the Holy Spirit as he works these words and this truth into your heart. The first one is this, when trials turn into temptation, don't blame God. When your trials turn into temptation, don't blame God. I want you to remember that James is writing in this letter to a people that are suffering. They're suffering trials. The entire opening of this letter, the entire first chapter that we've been talking about has been referring to these trials. We don't exa know exactly what they are. Poverty is likely a part of their trial. Certainly the fact that they've been scattered all over the Roman Empire and the, the struggle that that would give for their lives. And James warns them in the midst of these difficulties, and he broadens it, he broadens it to Whatever difficulties, right? Various kinds of trials. To be joyful, yes. To be seeking the Lord for wisdom, yes. But today, to be careful of the trajectory of your hearts and of the lies of the enemy that he loves to feed to God's people. And the lie is this, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now that's how most of our English translations handle that Greek that's there in verse 13. That's how the ESV does it that you have before you. But listen to this translation. Never... Again, verse 13, never when you are being put to the test, say, God is tempting me. Just change one word there. Never when you're being put to the test, say, God is tempting me. Now, that's a legitimate 
translation because the Greek word is the same. Whether it's test, whether it's tempt, it's the same word. And the context actually determines what English word you use to, to put there. But I like this latter translation. Never when you are being put to the test say God is tempting me because it helps show us that James is not leaving this testing. He's not leaving the trials that he's been talking about and suddenly going abruptly to a whole new subject and that is the subject of temptation. No, he's connecting the two. He's linking the two together. Verse 13 is the link. Now when you are being put to the test, do not say, I am being tempted by God. Because the reality is every trial has the potential to be and often becomes in our lives a temptation, an opportunity to forget God and to forget what He calls us to do. Let me give you an example. We struggle. We struggle financially. And we're tempted to question God's providence in our lives. A lost job, cut wages, whatever it may be. Maybe we take it a step further and, and, and increase our own sense of entitlement in the midst of this financial struggle. And we decide, well, we're entitled, so we're just going to cut corners a bit on our taxes. And it's all God's fault. Or how about this? We, we lose a loved one. And we're tempted to question whether God really loves us, whether God really cares for us. And, and we conclude, God owes me. I don't owe God anything. And so we stop coming to church. We stop participating in the life of God's people, all because of God. There are a lot of other subtle ways that we blame God. It's your fault if it weren't for this trial. If you didn't put me in that situation. If you didn't put me in that relationship. If, 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 whatever it may be. And in doing that, isn't that what our first parents did in the garden when God called them out on their disobedience? The woman that you gave me, God. You gave me. And James shouts from the rooftops and declares, no, that's not how God is. That's not who God is. That's not how He operates. God is not toying with you. As He already stated, God is working on you. God is working on you in your trials. Yes, God tests. He seeks to build character in His people through difficult circumstances. We saw it in the life of Abraham in Genesis 22 when God calls him to sacrifice his only son Isaac, the son of promise. Abraham trusted God and God provided. We saw it with the people of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. God gave them opportunity after opportunity to turn to Him and to trust in Him and they in large part failed. So God does test, but God does not tempt. 
God does not lure His people into situations where they sin. In fact, James says, He can't. His holiness, His his purity, His very nature is opposed to all evil. And so we read in Habakkuk 1, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And so in the midst of whatever these people are experiencing, in the midst of whatever hard trials you are experiencing, in the midst of your temptation to turn those trials into sin, James wants to distance God, appropriately so, from that which is antithetic to who He is. And he's going to further unpack that in the latter verses of this passage, which we'll get to in a moment. But the first thing we've got to think about and wrestle with is don't blame God for your sinful responses to trials. Instead, blame you. Blame yourself. God isn't toying with you. Your heart is toying with you, James says. Just north of here, in a little uh, northeast of uh, Cedro Willie, if you know where that is, Cedro Willie off of the 20, uh, there up north of Mount Vernon, flows a creek called Rocky Creek. And in 1992, I fished in Rocky Creek. It was the first I'd ever been to the state of Washington. I grew up in New Jersey. Many of you know that. We came and visited the state, visited some friends who were living on Whidbey Island. We went on a fishing trip at Rocky Creek. And I've always wanted to return there because it was like no other fishing trip I'd ever been on. It was a very, uh, a very steep creek that flowed out of the mountains, and we kind of hiked our way in, and it would, it would be waterfall after waterfall, and then a big pool, a big pool, eight-foot pool, ten-foot across, and we come to these pools, and there would be these big old trout just hiding, hiding under the rocks in these big pools, and, and as a guy who grew up in New Jersey, kind of a concrete playground didn't do a lot of fishing, just put my lure in, boop, give a little bit of a flash of the lure, and these guys would come out from under the rock, and bam, they'd hit it. It's the best fishing trip I've ever been on. Now James, why do I bring that up? James was likely not a fisherman. He was the son of a carpenter, after all, we know that. But James knew fishing, and he knew that his audience knew fishing. And so that's the kind of language that James uses here to describe how things go down between you and your heart. Temptations come our way. Now the Scripture doesn't tell us, James doesn't tell us specifically how those temptations come across our way. We know from other Scriptures that the enemy loves to put things before us. Sometimes it's the enemy and his specific attack. Sometimes it's simply the inclination of our own hearts. But temptations come our way, and the hook is out there in the middle of the pool. And and our hearts just can't resist the lure. We, We see that flash, and our desires kicked in, and boom, we're out, and we mouth the whole thing. We're bloodied, and we're in trouble now. Because we've sinned. And for the fish, the process continues its course. If it can't get off of the hook, 
If it can't get the hook out of its mouth, it's going to get pulled out of the water and it's going to die. Sin, when it is fully grown, James says, brings forth death. You see, it's us. It's us. It's, it's not God. God doesn't make us destroy ourselves. We can do that on our own. James is making the point. And I don't know about you, but this, this is humbling. Yes, brothers and sisters, you, you have the Spirit of God in you, giving you the ability to put off the flesh and to live for righteousness. And I don't want to downplay that. You, you have the power, but you have this war waging within you concerning your heart. And James reminds us that it's powerful. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor, we wouldn't agree with everything that he has written or said, but he's written and said some really good stuff. And in his book called Temptation, he helpfully describes, there are a few phrases in here which I just found so helpful, how this works in our lives. He says this, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or a desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we seek joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not fill us here with hatred for God, but with forgetfulness of God. I don't know about you, but in my moments of weakness, in my moments of sin, that's exactly what happens. God becomes unreal to me. I forget. But James says the blame doesn't go to God. Instead, we need to guard our hearts. We need to ask for the grace to not wander from Him because the God of the Bible is full of mercy. He's full of compassion. He knows your weakness. He helps you deal with that weakness, with tenderness. He's not abandoned you. He wants to help you. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, yes, we declare in this church that God is sovereign over all things, that there are no surprises for Him. But we also declare that He must not be blamed with evil. He must be distanced from it in our heads and in our hearts. Our historic confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, gives us language, helpful language, to help us live in this tension. In the third chapter of the Confession of Faith, it says, From all eternity, and by the completely wise and holy purpose of His will, God has freely and unchangeably ordained whatever happens 
This ordainment does not mean, however, that God is the author of sin. He is not. That He represses the will of His created beings. He doesn't. Or that He takes away the freedom or contingency of second causes. That was a mouthful, I realize. You'll have to read it later. When trials push you to temptation, don't blame God. He's not out to get you. He is not backing you in a corner. The pain you are experiencing is actually God seeking to make you well, to make you healthy. When I thought about this point, I thought about the the look on my father's face, my earthly father's face. In the summer of 1994, again in Washington, my parents had moved up to Linden, and I was working my last summer in Washington for a local contractor, building, framing. And on my last day of the job, I was about to go back to school. My last day of the job, I picked up a piece of plywood, and it, I picked it up like this, and it slipped out of my hand, and an eight-foot piece of plywood just fell flat on my big toe. And it killed. Oh, it hurt so bad. And I had, to, I had to leave work, and I came home, and, and I took off my, my boot, and didn't wear steel-toed boots, of course. So I, I looked at my toe, and underneath my toenail was blood, just pressurized, aching blood. And, and I remember talking to my dad, I'm like, Dad, this, this kills, I got to do something. We got to do something. And so my father, he went and got the drill. And he got the smallest drill bit he could. And he took me out front on the picnic table. And he said, this is going to hurt. And I said, it hurts bad now. Just release the pressure. And so at the very base of my big toe, where all that blood was just finding a place, I couldn't get out. My father drilled my toe. And and when it went through my nail, I let out a sound that you have never heard and you never want to hear a young man make. And I looked at my father's face and I'd never seen him look like that. My father had hurt me, intentionally hurt me to heal me. And and when when I thought about the Father, our Heavenly Father's position and perspective in the midst of trials, in the midst of of what he's working on. I I think about my dad's face. That is is the heavenly father. A a face not of, (laughs) but a face of horror and tenderness and anguish at what we're experiencing. When trials turn into temptation, don't blame God. He loves you. He's working on you. That's the first thing I want us to meditate on. The second, a bit shorter and a bit briefer, it's simply this. Believe that God is good and His grace is enough. This is just unpacking the the heart of the Father that James puts before us here, that, that face of the Father in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the pain, 
In verse 17, James takes us where our focus needs to be, the nature and character of God. And verse 16 forms the bridge. Don't be deceived. James says that our hearts and the evil one will feed us things that aren't true. Don't believe the lie that God has abandoned you. Don't believe that he's not for you. Don't believe that that your circumstances are beyond his control. Instead, believe, trust, and rejoice in the fact that not only all good things come from God, because even the world would say, oh yeah, thank you God for that. Got the new iPhone. Thank you, God. No. Believe and trust and rejoice in the fact that God is ever good, no matter what comes your way. And to show this, he reminds us of three things. The gifts, the giver, and the gift. The gifts, the giver, and the gift. First of all, the gifts. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Sunsets, rain, beating hearts, beautiful friendships, gifts, everyone. Ibuprofen for stubbed toes. That favorite album that you've had on repeat for days, the gifting and ability to succeed and do well at your job. Everyone is a gift. Whether you acknowledge it or not, God is the source of all these things, all good things. And James says, remember it, live it, acknowledge it, don't forget it. I've been reading a book entitled Disrupted Witness. It's a good book. I think the subtitle is Giving Witness to Christ in a Distracted Age. It's written by a professor, and he has an interesting section in there where he's talking about how to be disruptive in our witness. And he says something so simple it's almost comical. This is a PhD professor. And he says, We need to be saying grace as a people. Let me give you the quote. He says, what is uncommon is the view that whatever food lies before us is a gift from a personal God who provides for us because He loves us. The more divorced we are from the cultivation of crops and animals, the more mechanical and manufactured our food appears to us, the less we see it as a gift. Practice regularly saying grace is a reminder that the way things appear to us as modern people is not the truth of being. Underneath all the packaging and production and procedures remains God's providence and sustaining power. And he talks about this in the light of his own discomfort with saying grace when you're out to eat and trying to time it. Okay, she just left. Let's pray real quick. She just left. And he says, be disruptive. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. That's the gifts. And then the giver comes down from the Father of lights. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The path to joy knows the God who gives. And there James focused us on the, the generosity of God. God gives generously and without reproach. And here he brings up this this picture, the Father of lights. And we ask, well why why are you going here, James? Well, think about it. Our existence, we live in a world of ever-changing lighting. Sun, 
shadows, seasons, long days of summer, long nights of winter, moonlight, artificial light, they constantly move. Our eyes are constantly adjusting to an ever-moving lighting. And in all that movement, James reminds us, there's one constant over it all. The one constant who put that all in motion who breathed into light, excuse me, breathed into being the light that moves us and sustains us. Asaph worshiped Yahweh in this way in Psalm 74. Yours is the day, yours is also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Psalm 136, we declared it earlier in our call to worship, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and the stars to rule over the night. Our God is the ever good, always good God. There's no fickleness, there's no bad days, there's no changing of mind. James declares that in every season, but especially in those seasons that are tough and rough, in those trials where you are tempted, God is good. And he sums it up and closes around the case in point of God's goodness, the gift He reminds these believers, He reminds us this morning in the midst of our trials that salvation is the greatest gift we have. Verse 18, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of all His creatures. Now, there's a lot there in that little verse. Of His own will. Let's just talk about that phrase for a moment. God didn't see something in you. He didn't look into the future. Oh yeah, he's going to be a good dude. She's going to have her life together. Out of his mercy, out of his mere good pleasure, for the glory of his name, he chose you before the foundation of the world to be his, to be set apart, to be made blameless, to be his child. He brought us forth. This is the doctrine of of regeneration. He sent His Spirit to to grab a hold of our hearts, to open our eyes that the scales of blindness might fall off, that we might see the glory of Christ for who He is. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, the Scriptures clearly declare that the word of truth is the gospel. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 1, in Him also you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, remember these things. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. And you, you are first fruits. And I think James was speaking specifically to his first hearers, to these Jewish hearers in the first century. And he pulls in this Old Testament agricultural concept of of the first of the field and the fruit that, that God's people would give to God. And James is is saying to those people, those 
believers of the first century. You guys are the pioneer believers of a harvest that is going to be thousands of years into the future. God's goodness will continue. And it will continue. And His people will pray, Your kingdom come, Your will will be done. And it will continue until the fullness when God sends His Son to wrap things up and to make all things new. And so He says, remember the gift. Look forward to what is to come. Rejoice in the gift of salvation that you've been given. Rejoice that you are part of something that transcends your circumstances. Something that long outlives your life. You see, this is the ultimate goodness of God. Goodness to be worshipped. Goodness to be trusted in. Believe that God is good and His grace is enough. Friends, as you go from this place, it's easy to say it. It's hard to believe it. God is for you always. Rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice in His good gifts. Rejoice even in the trials as you plead for the faith to believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words, simple words to hear, hard words to live. Father, forgive us for those times, bold-faced as well as subtle, where we turn our circumstances into accusation. Accusation against you, that you don't know what you're doing, that you have left us, that you don't care. Father, give us the faith to believe that you are good, ever good. To rejoice and to live in that all-sufficient grace that you give freely, generously, without reproach to those who ask. Father, impress these truths upon our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.